0: This is the 14th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews, reviews, and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm your host, Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Richard Levins believes farmers have a source of power at their disposal, and it's long past the time they tapped into it. No, it's not some secret oil reserve pooled underground in the back forty. What the Agricultural Economist is talking about is market power. Levins, a professor emeritus in the University of Minnesota's Department of Applied Economics, has worked with farmers, farm groups, and public officials for more than 25 years. One of his areas of interest has been why farmers seem to continually get quote-unquote rewarded for their increasing efficiency with lower and lower prices. He has come to the conclusion that no matter how good they are at producing commodities, lack of power in the marketplace puts them at a severe disadvantage economically. As Professor Levins writes, Without market power, farmers can add value, but they cannot keep that value for themselves. Levins, a well-known writer and speaker on agricultural issues, has tackled that issue in a new book entitled, Market Power, What It Is, How to Get It, How to Use It. In this book, the economist lays out why getting efficient isn't enough and describes how farmers can join forces with other farmers to make sure they receive a fair price for their production. He then describes real-world examples of farmers who have teamed up to successfully wield market power. The book, which is written as a kind of how-to shop manual for farmers, has created quite a stir in the agricultural community. Levens recently sat down to talk about market power for farmers. Well, one thing, Dick, I wanted to talk to you about was in your book, uh, you talk about kind of the difference between. Well, I, I guess go back to go back a little bit. It, Two catchphrases that are really popular right now in agribusiness and, and in agriculture in general are adding value and efficiencies of size. Those are thrown around as uh, that's the only way you're going to survive today. And uh, in the book, you kind of take a little air out of those ideas. You kind of, for one thing, you say that if farmers don't have market power, adding value will mean nothing, really. that they you got to have that market power or uh, you're going to be it's not going to do you much good to add that value. Can can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, Brian. That's something that I
1: want to make it clear. I, I favor value added, and I favor efficiency. But the agricultural economy has changed so much that we can no longer assume that those who add the value are going to retain that value. And we can no longer assume that those who get more efficient are going to benefit from that efficiency. Uh, you know, you, all the time you see value added ventures that eventually wind up adding value to some non farm group. And you certainly see efficiency rewarded with lower prices all the time. You're more efficient, so now you don't need those prices. You can work cheaper. That's not what I want to see farmers have. If they're going to add value, I want them to keep the value. If they're going to get more efficient, I want them to keep the benefits of that. But that doesn't happen automatically. Those benefits go to the strongest players. And a farmer acting alone can hardly expect to be the strongest player when they look at who's buying their products and who's buying from them on the retailers. Uh, It's just not a level playing field anymore.
0: Right. Well, one thing, um maybe you should you should outline a little bit what's the difference between becoming competitive and having market power I think you, you made a good point in there that farmers have really gotten into the mode of competing against each other or you've got to be competitive on the either the regionally or nationally or internationally but what's the difference there is a difference there
1: there's a big difference Brian and it took me um not just twenty five years in farm management but took me several years teaching freshman economics to finally figure it out. The Being competitive is always interpreted to be being competitive with your neighbor. Uh, in decades gone past, that's been your immediate neighbor. Now it's your neighboring farmer in another country. But in any event, farmers are told the path to salvation is to somehow be the last person standing in a competitive war with your neighbors. That's a very poor way to do business. The problem is how are you going to be competitive with your buyers? Competitive in terms of how much power you've got and how the gains of what is being done between retailing, processing, and production, how those gains are going to be shared. Uh, You're going to get just enough to keep you alive in a fully competitive system. But how about the rest? Where is that going to go? And I think if you look at the profit statements of major private processors, of major private retailers, and look at your own bottom line, you'll get some feel for where that's going. And I hope you're not going to be satisfied with that.
0: Uh, You know, another uh, uh, mantra that's that's uh, pushed around by boosters of large scale agribusinesses, the idea of y- you got to get big or get out and you, you talk about acting big or, or getting out can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah um, one of the big parts of the get efficient argument is that you need to get big to achieve those efficiencies and therefore you'll still be around when your less efficient neighbor is gone now I want to stay out just for a minute of the argument of whether or not large really is more efficient. There's there's both sides on that. Mm-hmm. The important point is what's large by farm standards is tiny by buyer standards. No farm can get big enough in any reasonable way to have the kind of power their buyer's going to have. You're looking at, for example, in the dairy industry, you're looking at three or four buyers having what, I think it's 60, 70 percent of the share of cheese and fluid milk, you go over to beef, you're looking at 80 plus percent and four processors. Farms don't get that big, they just can't. So that's why I'm saying a better strategy in today's agricultural economy would be to focus on marketing rather than production. In a marketing you say act big or get out. Mm-hmm. That buyer has to see a supply of product that is comparable to what they're buying. Now, farmers don't need to lose their independence in doing that. But they need to come together and act as if they were one unit at the moment they sell their product, not the rest of the time. You can farm however you want, be as independent as you want, but if you're going to get all your crop is worth, you're going to have to act big in the marketplace.
0: Uh, you have some really amazing statistics in there about how efficient farmers have become over the years. And uh, uh, unfortunately, they've been rewarded for that efficiency with lower prices, as you point out. Right. Is that is agriculture unique, or have we seen that in other industries where uh, kind of efficiency has been, it, it's, it's held up as such a, as the epitome of what you should do in business, but farmers have really been penalized in a way. Have we seen that in other areas?
1: One of my favorite quotes is from an agricultural economist who I respect a lot. Um, he said that efficiency is the rich person's counsel for the poor person. <laughs> and I think that says it all. If I am a big, powerful buyer, I certainly want those who are selling to me to get just as efficient as they could possibly get. Because all their efficiency is going to benefit me. Right. I mean what a better what a better program I could possibly have. But if that efficiency that other people are working so hard to gain, and I think in some ways they should be efficient after all, but why aren't they keeping the gains? That's the whole question. It's not whether we should be efficient, not be efficient, as big, more efficient, as small. The question is who's going to keep the gains? And that's a market power question. That's not an efficiency
0: question. You talk a lot about, and I've talked to you about this before, the Capra volstead Act, and how it gives farmers a unique, a unique tool. Um, can you talk, just give us kind of a layperson's definition of how this the this act works, why it was put in place, and maybe talk about why farmers haven't, I know you're very frustrated that farmers mm-hmm. haven't really taken full advantage of this uh, This thing that was put in place by Congress.
1: Kapper-Folstead is a magnificent law that I think the more farmers knew about it, the more they would be surprised they have such potential market power. I think in 1922, uh, Congress became concerned that farmers were going to lose their independence if they could not act in a way that was comparable to the size of the buyers. And they, at the same time, kind of backed themselves into a corner because they were concerned about the big private trusts that were acting together in ways they didn't like to gouge consumers. So they gave farmers basically an exemption from antitrust. It's not quite that strong, but it allowed farmers to act together in pricing their products so long as they didn't gouge consumers. That is a very powerful uh, thing to have on your side. It's the kind of thing if you don't have that gets private companies in tremendous difficulty. I think the most famous case in that way in agriculture is probably uh, ADM's uh, problems with lysine several years ago. They uh, according to the legal cases tried to price their product with along with their competitors and it found to be illegal. Farmers can do that. They have that right and the reason is because Congress wanted them to be able to stay independent and family size, but at the same time recognize that independent family size operations, acting alone, could not expect to receive all they, all they should be getting for their product. It was a nice solution then, it's a nice solution now. Along the way, it's kind of fallen by the, by the wayside in terms of efficiency, in terms of government payments, in terms of all other solutions, because after all, no one of these is a panacea. It's going to take everything we have to get all you deserve, but it's one of those marketing tools that really kind of lies there waiting to be tried, and I'm looking forward to that.
0: why haven't farmers been able to not even with the Kapper Volstead Act but in general they have not had success banding together and working as a group I think there are
1: instances where farmers have had success but by and large farmers have used Kapper Volstead to um, use a strategy that's commonly called eliminating the person in the middle and in decades past I think that made a lot of sense because most of the market power and most of the profits were concentrated in these so-called middlemen. But now we've got something going on that's very different. That power is moved into the hands of retailers, and that person in the middle might be worried about whether or not they're going to be able to stay in business the way they're getting squeezed by the giant retailers. So being in the middle might be out there in the middle of a battleground Rather than, the, rather than the middle of a place that's stocked with all this excess cash. Right. So in my view, the place to draw the line, the place to set the price, the place to make sure you get the value for what you have is at the farm gate. Now, if you want to add value to that, that's great, but get it there first so you know what you're adding value to. If you want to be more efficient, hold that farm gate price up so you get the advantage and not someone else.
0: You know, one thing I really like that that, that you've written and, and talked about is this idea that when farmers band together like this, they're concerned that they're giving up independence. But in a way, you say this is a way of preserving independence. Uh, you're, you're kind of—it's a way to maintain profits without getting bigger and consolidating. And I, I, I think that's an important message to get across. It
1: for me it sure is, Brian. Um you know we're doing this interview in a in a in, the, in a building that houses uh, one of the better uh agricultural economics programs in the country right now and I'm proud to be part of that. At least it was till I retired recently. But I think if you went up down the halls and asked people is market power being used? They'd say yes. And if you say, well, shouldn't farmers use it? They'd say, well, maybe, but they won't because they're just too independent. That argument makes no sense to me anymore. It may have been true in the past, but look what's happening to farmer independence today as we're having this interview when farmers are not acting together. Look at the poultry industry. Look at what's happening to the uh, hog industry. Look at certain proposals in the grain industry right now. Look at the number of farmers who are not only independent, they're not farmers at all anymore because they're forced out of business by low prices. Look at that trend and tell me that that trend is fostering independence. Look at the direction of retailing and processing where they are telling their suppliers exactly what they want, when they want it, how they want it done, no negotiation. Tell me how that contributes to independence only way to be fully independent, to have some say in calling the shots, some say in what you're going to get for your product is to be strong. And in my view, the only way to be strong is to act together.
0: Um, you you outline some examples in, in your uh, in your book, and I know one of them is the old farm the uh, I'm trying to think of the, what it stands for. Organic
1: Organic Farmers Alliance for uh, Organic Farmers Agency for Relationship Marketing is pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> it's I, got the right letters.
0: I've talked to uh, to Carmen Fernholz, who's a, oh, who's a, a mm-hmm. big player in that, and some other folks. Mm-hmm. And it's a really interesting uh, example of not investing in bricks and mortar, but really getting together and sharing information, and not allowing themselves to be pitted against each other by uh, uh, processors and people that they'd be selling their organic products to, um, It, in some ways, it's kind of a common sense kind of thing, rather than we've got this real sophisticated uh, uh, investment in technology and, and uh, in facilities. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Opharma? I think that's a real sure. example. And some people may think, well, it's organics, so it doesn't apply to me, but I think you make the point in the book that you wouldn't have to be organic to take advantage of a a system like this.
1: O-Farm is a very good example of Capra Volstead in action. You know, exactly how to apply it and why to apply it. What we had is a situation where, in organic farming, uh, I think most organic farmers that I know, and I know quite a lot of them, got into this thing so they could get away from these big buyers. They're going to go off in the corner over there and have a good life and just deal directly with consumers whatever they want to do well as the as things went on uh, the buyers got bigger and bigger so they formed relatively small cooperatives well the buyers got bigger and bigger and now the buyers could even play a whole cooperative against each other so the solution was to have a system, a legal system was set up in which the market leaders for each of the co-ops would be allowed to talk to each other about prices before anything was sold. And that prevents what's called a reverse auction, that a buyer will go around the co-ops one after the other and say, they'll give me this, but would you give me that? Well, if you'll give me this, the next one will give me that. And by the time they get back around the first one, there's two or three dollars gone. And that's very—that's just money straight out of the farmer's pocket and straight into the shareholder or the buyer's pocket. There's nothing else going on there. And obviously, the farmers and the organic farmers involved in this grain venture didn't think that was a very good idea for them. And I had a great opportunity, something you don't get very often in this kind of work, to compare side-by-side pricing of organized and unorganized farmers. Hmm. It turned out that the premiums that the organized O-farm farmers were getting were in the range of 10 to 40 percent higher. Than those who were outside of this um, network. Right. That that's just pure marketing. That's ten to forty percent laying there waiting to be taken by organization. Those farmers are every bit as independent as they were before. They can sell it cheaper if they want to. But so far, I'm having a hard time finding farmers who think lower prices are better than higher prices. (laughs) Most of them take the higher price. wouldn't go figure. But I think that's what's going on here. Farmers are making it an option to have a higher price. And when they get that option, they say, well, my gosh, I'm going to take it. And I would, too.
0: Well, what's interesting about something like O-Farm, which is organic, they're marketing organic greens, I would think that farmers, we've already... talked about how farmers are resistant to, to banding together anyway, it would sp- seem to be a particularly hard sell in organics, which is historically and is still enjoying pretty good price premiums. So you'd think they'd have even more incentive to, or a disincentive to band together. you hey, I can get my premiums uh, as an individual farmer.
1: Right. I think the realization there, and I certainly can't take credit for this, the leaders of O-Farm and all of the individual co-ops um, NF Organics, Kansas Kansas Organic Producers, all of them I've had a chance to meet with these people many times and be meeting with them again in a couple of weeks. They are very, very good at what they do and they liked the fact that they had these premiums naturally by being organic but they wanted to keep them. Mm-hmm. That's the trick. They had added some value and they wanted to retain it and they realized that would not happen by the natural uh... workings of a market with enormous buyers and small sellers that sooner or later they'd be commodity organics and they didn't want to do that and I say more power to them I wouldn't want to do that either so they took the extra step to protect the value they had added makes all the sense in the
0: world and they may not be always getting the highest price available out there but they're getting a consistently profitable price. They're able to kind of stabilize their, the price that they're getting and, and, and rely on that a little more.
1: Exactly. I think this power marketing may be confusing to some farmers because when they think marketing, they think more of an individual outsmart the buyer strategy where you're going to forward contract or you're going to sell at this time instead of that time or hedge or take an option you're going to somehow outsmart the market. This is not that at all. Individuals can do that other game and if you're smart enough, if you're smarter than a grain company, you're going to do just fine. Uh, I know I'm not smarter than a grain company but maybe some farmers are. What I'm talking about is your buyers are not only outsmarting you, they're more powerful. Sometimes I talk about if I was going to get into a boxing match with some champion boxer here, remember if you can't see me on this tape, but I don't look much like a boxer, (laughs) that um, I might get a PhD in boxing and try to outsmart them, well that'd be just great. I probably would be able to outsmart them, but I'd still be dead (laughs) because they're a lot more powerful. And I think some of you need to think about that. I don't care how smart you are. You look at the size of those buyers and you look at your own sales and you tell me how you're going to match head-to-head with them, because
0: you know, I'd like to hear that. Right, yeah. Well, um, and again, I guess we should make clear, O-Farm's a good example, but just because they're organic doesn't mean others couldn't do oh. this in any, you know, other commodities. Absolutely not.
1: I mean, you know, you look at um, some other programs, uh, take different approaches. Um, for example, uh, CWT cooperatives working together, is a program that conventional dairy producers use to manage the supply in such a way as it's consistent with demand. Uh, That's one way to use market power and so far that seems to be well received by the dairy farmers. There are many examples, but the trick is to think power, not outsmarting these people, and to think you have legal rights that your buyers don't have, and most importantly to think that working together encourages independence rather than taking away from it. As I said, my preference would be that as farmers form new cooperatives, they, they move back toward preserving the value on farming and let these other people do what they need to do at that next level. Now, that's not to say that this model of the brick and mortar is not going to work in many cases. But my own feeling is as we look ahead, what's called the bargaining cooperative may make more economic sense than the brick-and-mortar model in many situations, but I can't say this enough, that is not a condemnation of brick-and-mortar co-ops. It's simply asking farmers to take care of the home business first. First make sure that that price you're getting for your product is shored up, because it's real tempting to say, well, We didn't get so much for our crop this year, but we made it up on the other end. And then pretty soon, you say, "Well, the other end didn't doing so well either." So now instead of selling cheap milk, you're selling cheap cheese. That doesn't get you very far.
0: Right. Well, in a way, you know, we talked about earlier. We talked about the difference between adding value and, you know. Uh, market power and all of that, but this is a way of adding value in itself, and people traditionally think when you add value, you're repackaging it in a different way, you're processing it and whatever, but this is adding value through information, I guess.
1: Oh, very much. I mean, I think the O-Farm is a good example. If we would look at organic grain sold through organized channels, as opposed to organized grain sold through individual channels, we would see a 10 to 40% value added. Mm-hmm. And that's value added that's going to stay right there and that does not require some very large, very risky investment, investment that can put the whole farm at risk trying to step out of what farmers do so well and into kind of deeper water that maybe they're not quite as confident in.
0: Yeah. You're adding value before it even leaves the farm. Exactly. And that's a good place to do it, I think. Yeah, I guess... Uh if farmers ever do attain true market value, market power uh, on a large scale, how would that affect consumers uh, or the general economy? Would mm-hmm. you, have you looked looked at that at all?
1: I don't think consumers <coughs> would see much difference. And there's two reasons for that. One is a provision in the Capra Volstead Act that the Capra Volstead Act specifically prohibits price gouging. Mm-hmm. And if that were going on, between the processors, the retailers, and consumer groups, that would be a, come a, a point of controversy right away. Now, in, since 1922, there's never been a successful challenge on Kapper Volstead. It hasn't happened yet, and I'm not looking for it to happen in the future. But the other thing that's going on, in, is just as an economist, let me get back to being an old freshman economics teacher, it's kind of interesting, is more and more research is showing that the farm price... And the consumer price are not related the way they used to be. Hmm. That when the farm price goes down, the consumer price stays right where it was before, and the shareholders soak up the difference. Which of course is what you can do when you got market power. That's why you get market power. Right. So I'm thinking that maybe consumers, what they're seeing happening in the retailer store, might be some, have more to do with the retailers and the processors than it does with the farmers. You know, the farmer's share is getting smaller by the day, so it can move around a little bit. Plus, you got all that slack in the middle of processor and retailer profits. It's not as clean as it used to be. This is not farmers selling directly to consumers with nobody in the middle. There's a lot of powerful people in the middle. So I'm thinking that consumers and the country as a whole would actually benefit by having a stable, independent, reasonably sized farm economy that was able to to, do what it's always done, which is produce quality food and keep everybody fed.
0: As you can hear, Professor Levins has a way of making complicated concepts quite understandable. His writing is equally accessible. To get a copy of the 60-page book, Market Power for Farmers, contact the Institute for Rural America at P.O. Box 566, Ames, Iowa 50010. That's P.O. Box 566, Ames, Iowa 50010. And the name of the book is Market Power for Farmers. You can also call the Institute at toll-free 1-800-858-6636. That's 1-800-858-6636. To read a review of another of Richard Levins's books, Willard Cochran, and the American Family Farm, see the July-August 2000 issue of the Land Stewardship Letter at www.landstewardshipproject.org backslash news dash dot html. That's landstewardshipproject.org backslash news dash lsl dot html. That book provides some keen insights into how federal agricultural policy ended up where it is today. For more on Levins' other work, including a list of his many papers, see www.apec.umn.edu backslash faculty backslash D. and Levins is spelled L-E-V-I-N-S. That's www.apec.umn.edu backslash faculty backslash D. You can send your comments. Criticisms and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at B. DeVore at Land That's B. at Land You can also get me on the horn at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician and LSB staffer who provided Ear to the Grounds theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and would like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening.